The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. The results thus far for the American banks have been good for the traditional lenders, where the results have been very weak, of course, is with the investment banks in the uh, capital markets area. That was the view from Jared Cassidy, an analyst at RBC Capital Markets. The American banking titans' results and their implications for the U.S. economy is the focus of this week's Views Room. Welcome back to the Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. Bank of America, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs have all reported results over the past couple of weeks. And my colleague John Foley in the US is here to talk to me about what it all means, what it could mean to the economy. And I'm also joined by Liam Proud, who is our European financials guru, who might also be able to give us a bit of a preview as to what we can expect next week. So, John, Liam, very nice to chat to you. Hi. Hi, Amy. So, John, I'll start with you. We've seen these, obviously, you know, banking titans come out. And it, I would just be really curious because there's there's obviously a lot of kind of economic concerns globally about in this, in the UK, this cost of living. There's uh, obviously what's going on in the Ukraine. There's um, talks of, of a recession. What what do you what do you think are the big takeaways from from the US bank earnings? Well, so the big banks, JP Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, the big sort of classic, you know, traditional banks, they have this amazing insight into what's going on into the economy. Like JP Morgan, for example, serves about half of all American households and they see what we're going to spend. They kind of know what we're going to spend before we spend it. They know when we're going to fail to pay back our loans before we fail to pay them back. So we watch these banks really closely to see what they think about the economy. And, and also they... Um, they tell us what they think is coming. But what what's interesting is that we're in these really uncharted times at the moment where the banks themselves don't quite know what's going to happen next. They've been through credit cycles before where, for example, delinquencies on credit cards will go down and then they'll go up. And that's often linked to what's happening with things like unemployment. But right now, they're kind of still feeling their way around. We've been through such unusual times during COVID-19, particularly in the US, where households were basically given cash by the government to keep them afloat. Uh, people have hoarded deposits. They've kept more money in the bank than they normally would, and they still have much more money in the bank than they did before 2020. So we're not seeing usual household or corporate responses to the changing economic conditions. So what banks are now doing is they're trying to work out where bad debts are going to go, like who's going to not pay back the money they owe to the banks, whether it's credit cards or mortgages or whatever. And also what's going to happen to interest rates, because interest is about half of the income that all of these banks make. We're trying to work it out. Analysts and investors trying to work it out. Households obviously care deeply about this. And the bank CEOs themselves, they don't even really know where this is going to go next. And you said that, John, in one of your pieces, that that some banks are, are sort of trying to give an indication as to where this interest rate, like where that will fall. Um, and others are being a bit cagey. As you said, they're, they're, they don't really know themselves. They're sort of feeling it out. But I mean, this could obviously be very good news, right? As in interest rates go up. I think, you know, Jamie Dimon talked about maybe, you know, the central bank rate resting around 6%. I mean, that would be massively beneficial, right, to the banks. 
Yeah, so Jamie Dimon is a good example of this. He runs JP Morgan, which is, you know, an absolutely enormous bank. So interest rates matter hugely to JP Morgan. So if interest rates go up and the, and the Federal Reserve, which obviously sets interest rates, thinks they're going to be, some, they might get, get up to somewhere just over 5%. And Dimon was saying that he thinks it might be more like 6%. So that's kind of good because, you know, banks charge us interest on, on stuff. And so the higher the interest rate, the more money they get. But, the, but one of the uncertainties, that's really interesting, I think, at the moment, because it's kind of a psychological thing, is how much they have to give back to their customers, to depositors, because, you know, depositors want a return on their bank accounts too. And usually there's like a lag, right? So when interest rates go up, price of loans goes up straight away, but deposit rates rise much more slowly, partly because we're all so lazy that we just don't really move our money around looking for the best deal. So they're all trying to work out at what speed customers will kind of get wise to higher interest rates and start to be more demanding. And usually the rule of thumb is that about 50% of the total interest rate hike over the cycle will get passed back to consumers. But right now we're, we're in the 20s, really. Like consumers just aren't being that demanding. And banks like Bank of America, the boss of Bank, Bank of America, the guy Brian Moynihan, he was saying that you know customers, at some of the lower income levels, mid to low income levels have about four times as much in the bank still as they did before COVID. And they're not really actively moving that around to try and get a better deal. So that's bad for us because we get less money in return for our savings. It's great for banks though because it means there's more left for them. Absolutely. But there's another side of, of these banks, uh, in some cases, obviously, Goldman Sachs, the investment banks. How are they doing in all of this? Because we've seen you know, deals have sort of dried up, the IPO market's not looking very healthy. What are they saying about sort of the future and what we kind of get from their results? Yeah, this is this is where things get interesting on a global level, right? Because uh, interest rates and retail banking and even corporate banking is very kind of local. Obviously, the US is a huge market, but it's still quite, you know, it's as local as any other market. But investment banking is kind of a global business. And globally, we're seeing the money the banks make from advising on mergers and acquisitions and from underwriting stocks and bonds for companies has just collapsed. And it's collapsed everywhere and it's collapsed for all the banks. So when I look at the, the big ones, you said Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, you know, City, Bank of America, JP Morgan, also big on this. They all saw their advisory fees, so from advising on deals, in some cases halve year on year. And underwriting was even worse. It was down sort of 60, 70 percent for most of the banks. Goldman did a bit better than everyone else especially on merger advisory, uh, but it's still down. So so that business really sucks right now. And there's not much sign that it's getting better. Um, you know, some of the banks, Morgan Stanley was one, talked about how there's this kind of pipeline concept where companies still want, want to do stuff. They're still thinking about buying each other. They're just not actually doing it. So the banks are trying to get their bankers to jump on airplanes and schmooze chief executives and try and make them go ahead with these deals that they, for really good reasons, probably don't currently want to do. Absolutely. So better to be a retail banker at the moment, probably, than an investment banker. Well, there's the third thing, actually, which is trading business. So oh, trading yeah, stocks and bonds is, um, is also obviously huge for, for all of these banks. Um, and that's actually doing OK. So so this is the third leg, if you like, of the three-legged table that is banking. You've got the, the, you know, the actual banking, then you've got advising on deals and stuff, and then you've got trading. And trading, because markets are so weird and wobbly, and interest rates are changing at like interest rates have gone up at a record speed in the US. And that makes, you know, securities prices um, swing around and then banks trade them and they make loads of money. So trading is still a bright spot. Um, and particularly in what they call fixed income, um, all of the banks did did pretty well. So that, you know, Goldman's fixed income was up about 40 odd percent. 
equities, which is more linked to the stock market, is was not so good. But they're still making plenty of money from these kind of weird, unsettled times. Interesting. And so, Liam, this maybe gives us food for thought, or maybe it doesn't actually relate in any way. But I'm just sort of curious: so who do we have coming up, and what does the U.S. does it tell us anything about what we might expect? Yeah, so I think a lot, a lot of similar themes actually when it comes to the Europeans. Um, so you know, obviously, all of the big ones will will start reporting soon. I think next week we've got UBS and Deutsche Bank and and several others, and then you'll beyond that have you know your Barclays and Credit Suisses and and BMP. I think there are two big things that, that that people are watching for. The first is really similar to what John was saying about bad debt and defaults and sort of the jargony phrase that people use is asset quality. Sort of what is the what's the prognosis for for how many loans are gonna are gonna lose money? If you look at the share prices of European banks, they're extremely heavily discounted relative to their own history and and relative so, to the US and it, relative to the US, yeah. So is the is the idea then that you people kind of think that those bad debts are going to be worse in Europe than they would be in the US? I think there was an impression that because of the way that Europe was going to be affected by the the energy crisis and you know we've we've had our first land war in Europe in you know how many decades that it, there was going to be a recession that industries and households in Europe would be maybe worse affected and that you know companies like Deutsche Bank who who are huge bankers to you know the industrial heartland of Germany which the narrative was very much they're going to really struggle through this crisis if we have a cold winter if you speak to the banks themselves and if you sort of dive into the numbers and if you sort of you know listen to what the analysts say and other people who who have been looking at this it's hard to get too worried i don't want to sound kind of complacent you know the big thing that really drives losses on banks loan books at least historically has been you know how high does unemployment go and it's very hard to find someone you know if you sort of look around the forecast for unemployment who thinks that it's going to get to really really scary levels this is the sort of concept of a soft landing that seems to have become the the consensus view that we're going to be able to bring down inflation without inflicting too much pain on on households and businesses banks have definitely that's where they see this playing out you know i think that's true for the americans and the europeans if you look at the amount of money they've set aside to cover bad debts and defaults it's not as big as um, as you would get to if you if you really sort of hung your hat on one of these super pessimistic scenarios so that's the first thing asset quality and the other thing which is you know is also true in the us but it's really novel in europe is that you can actually make money by making a loan. It sort of hasn't, you know, I'm being a little bit sort of um, blasé about that, but you know, we had negative interest rates in the Eurozone for a really, really long time. And you know, you would struggle to find a bank three or four years ago. And I'm talking about, you know, a classic bank, a bank that has deposits on one side of the balance sheet and then loans on the other side. You would struggle to find a big bank in the Eurozone that was covering its sort of was returning enough to shareholders in order for shareholders to feel satisfied, sort of generating shareholder value. People thought that was going to be the case forever. And you saw all these banks sort of say, okay, how can we diversify so we do more fee-based businesses rather than lending and you know, when try almost trying not to be banks anymore. That has completely reversed. Now, if you look at the businesses that people get really excited about in Europe, um, the share prices that have shot up the most, it's really unlikely characters like Commerce Bank has, you know, it's still very lowly rated, but it's come up a lot because it's got a huge load of loans and people are saying, oh, you can actually make money by making loans. 
Wow. But you mentioned, obviously, Liam, a, a bank that is maybe people don't think necessarily is having a soft landing, which is Credit Suisse, mm. uh, which has so many different issues going on with it. What do you think is the sort of the main takeaway that people are sort of looking for from that bank when when they kind of do their results? Because they are so closely watched at the moment. Yes. So just the context with Credit Suisse is they had a, a, a very scary moment back in October and they're about to announce their new strategy under this new team of the chairman and chief executive, these two characters called Lehman and Uli Korner. And they were about to announce this new strategy. And then there was this incredible situation where basically a bunch of, I, I want to say unfounded social media rumors about their, their solvency started flying around and people pulled huge, almost unimaginable amounts of money from the bank, mostly in the Asian wealth management business. They lost about you know, I think it was about 80 billion within a few weeks, two or three weeks, which, you know, got them pretty close to breaching some really important regulatory liquidity thresholds, um, sort of how much cash do you have to have sitting around? So people are going to be, I would say almost people will, you know, control F, find in the document the word outflows, and they will say, what has happened to the outflows? Are you still losing money? You've said it's stabilised. What does that mean? Are you bringing money back in? Um, so that's going to be a huge issue with Credit Suisse, because if their wealth business is losing money, leaking assets, then I think it gets starts to get quite hairy if that keeps happening. And you have to sort of start thinking about plan Bs at some point. If, on the other hand, it's not as bad as it could be, and they sort of pull some of the assets back, then um, I think you can see a path to that bank not being such a basket case, even though it will take many years, I think, to get there. Very interesting. So on both sides of the pond, it looks like retail banking is OK, as long as the impairments aren't too large. Um, investment banking, patchy. So very interesting. And thank you, John. And thank you, Liam. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London and Sharon Lamb in Toronto. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.